and the role which exists as an abstract concept in itself. These are two different things. Let me give you another example, which I, I, I'm sure this is not really necessary, but just for the fun of it, imagine that you are, sit, you are going to the uh, production of an opera in the, uh, the, op the great opera house of Milano, Milan. Uh, that's one of the greatest opera houses, and it has a cast. They have announced months before that Galli Curci is going to sing Mandama Butterfly. Uh, you know, now I just pulled a uh, tw early 20th century singer, very famous in her days, Galli Curci, who was a person and Madama Butterfly was the abstract role which she was playing. So I bought my ticket to that production because I wanted to hear Gali Kurchi sing Madama Butterfly. But in the last minute, the Opera House announced that, sorry, Madame, uh, Gali Kurchi has a sore throat. She won't be able to sing tonight. And a lot of people came just to hear her sing. So they'll be up in arms and storm the box office to say, give us, give our money back. We didn't want to see your uh, scenery, your... Uh, Understudy. Uh, yeah, we, we came to hear Gallicurci and we are not getting it. It's unfair. So of course, the Opera House learned the lessons, and ever after, they printed on the ticket that the cast is subject to change without notice, okay? And they covered themselves. They were no longer responsible to give you a refund if they had to change the cast in the last minute. Now, the same here. The marginal worker is a role to be cast, and this is subject to change without notice. Any kind of reason could uh, occur to change the cast, could be outside, could be subjective, doesn't matter, as long as a change is made, uh, the, uh, it's understood that we are not talking about a person. There's nothing personal about being <coughs> the marginal worker. Nothing personal about it, because it's a role which could change. Sometimes it changes very fast. If the technological uh, circumstances change, which is happening in the computer industry all the time, you know, then a marginal programmer is a role which could change very fast because they come out with a new technology, uh, Pentium number 10 or whatever, and then a lot of these marginal programmers won't know what it is. But some of them will, and they are the marginal. So, you know, you have to be on the top of the list, and, and that has to be understood very well. 
that we are talking about a cast in the sense of casting roles in a play or in an opera production or in a movie or whatever. It's a cast. And the marginal uh, subject, because it's applicable to other examples, this is just one, but we'll talk about the marginal bondholders, for example. That's also a role to be cast, and that could change. Now, in ordinary times, there is no change. But when things become uh, frantic, either because of technological revolution or because of collapse of the value of the money or something else, then the cast is maybe changing from minute to minute. You know. So depending on these outside factors, the cast is subject to change without notice. And when we define, in this case, marginal productivity of labor, we do by referring to the marginal worker and it's his or her productivity which becomes the marginal productivity of labor. But again, there's nothing personal about it because it's subject to change. So uh, with this understood, I think we have arrived at a proper and acceptable concept the marginal productivity of labor, and I am suggesting it to you and to everybody else who are not here and not listening, but they should be, that this should this concept should find its way into a treatise such as human action or the theory of money and credit or some such other uh, comprehensive treatise on economics or money. And here is the reason why it is important. Because this concept, marginal productivity of capital, is the one which determines the wage rate. It does. Not everybody will see it immediately, but if you just give it a little thought, you will see that the wage rate is not determined by the employer. Very far from it. The employer is not just an agent. The employer is an agent of whom? Um, his company. No. Capital. Who? Of the capital. Of? Capital or capitalist. No. No. Who is the... Uh, well, ultimately society. Well, more specifically of the... Consumer. Oh, that's it. That's it. Give him a hand. Yeah, that's very, very important. It's not the employer who decides what uh, your wage should be. It's the consumer, because the consumer will either buy the product or he will refuse to buy. And if 
he buys it, then the uh, enterprise will be profitable. But if he refuses to buy it, then it means that you have no, you have uh, not deserved your uh, job, you should be dismissed and you will be dismissed sooner or later because no enterprise can go on indefinitely and produce losses year after year. So it is the marginal productivity of labor which decides what the wage rate should be. If the employer pays more than that, then he will be making losses, will go bankrupt. If he pays less than that, then the competing enterprises will bid away the worker, offering the worker, the marginal, a higher wage. So it's this process which will define the wage rate. So this is very important. I still have how much time? Another 15. Okay. Now, uh, what I want to call your attention is the method of marginalism. Uh, you see, if you say that you have the concept of marginal productivity of labor and you arrive at it by averaging, you look at wages all around the spectrum and you take you slice it and dice it and blah, blah, blah. Use high-flying mathematical methods, integral calculus, differential calculus, variation calculus, all what you have, and come up with an average and say, that's the marginal productivity of labor. Then you have done nothing to add to knowledge. Because simply you apply the wrong method. You apply the method of averaging. You've got to do what Mises started out doing here. I mean, this is a good starting point. I added two improvements to it, which may be important, maybe not so important, but I think it is important, and with that, uh, change, I suggest that you have graduated from the method of averaging, which is strictly for the uh, protosphere. <laughs> You've graduated to the logosphere and used the method of marginalism. What you do is you rank the prospective workers who are at present unemployed according to their productivity. And these are sub-marginal, but at the top of the line there are workers in waiting. I call it in, in quotation mark. Workers in waiting. They are potential workers. They'll be hired at the time the uh, companies start expanding their production. And obviously they will find, they will hire the best. And after that, if they still need, then the second best, then the third best. 
as long as they need uh, actual uh, extra workers to do their uh, job of producing for the uh, to satisfy the needs of the consumers and that's a different method method of marginal ranking and then introduce a criterion for finding the marginal uh, subject in this case, because in some other, other examples such as marginal productivity of capital, it will be the marginal object, but in this case it's the marginal subject. <coughs> so when you compare what we do in coming up with the concept of marginal utility and when we come up with the concept of marginal productivity of labor, you will see that it's the same method. In both cases, in each case, there is a ranking involved, and there will be sub-marginal uh, workers on the one hand, and then there will be people whose uh, um, uh, needs and uh, the uh, utility is different. I, I have no time to go into further details, I'm just calling your attention that compare the two, how we arrive at the concept of marginal utility, how we arrive at the concept of marginal productivity of labor, and you will see that it's the same method, which has nothing to do with averaging, nothing. And Menger was the first one who saw that. Now, Menger didn't talk about marginal uh, productivity of labor because he was a very, <coughs> very busy man. He had not only was a professor and an author, but he was also a government official. Uh, he had high offices in uh, monetary reform which went on at the time in Austria and the rest of the world and so on. The silver question came into the fore and so he was very busy and during the last decade of his life when he was already uh, he died when he was 82 years, 81 or 82 years old but uh, uh, when he retired, he had a son uh, who was also called Karl Menger, but he wrote his name with a K. So Karl with a K is the son, and Karl with a C is the father. And you've got to be very careful uh, in distinguishing between the two. Uh, <clears throat> they are both famous in their own right, but there's just no comparison. The father is way, way, way ahead. Uh, the son uh, went to the United States and he became a professor of mathematics uh, at the University of Illinois. And I think he spent uh, the rest of his active life there. Now, the 10 years when they worked together during the last decade of life of Karl Menger, Karl the father with a C, 
before he died in 1921, they worked on the second edition of the, the greatest work in all economics, the slim volume, uh, the English title is Principles of Economics. And the second edition never came off the drawing board, unfortunately, we don't know. Uh, but uh, we do know that Mises wanted to add the chapter, not Mises, Menger wanted to add the chapter on theory of interest and so on, and he would have probably expanded on the method of marginalism because there are lots of other points of contact between the uh, 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 proto-sphere and the logosphere. He worked out one, marginal utility, but there is also marginal productivity of labor, marginal productivity of capital. Now, just as a parting thought, I mentioned that the concept of marginal productivity of labor demonstrates the futility of the government policy of high wages. Well, we know that the politicians run under the slogan, we've got to raise the wage level because people are underpaid, they are exploited, blah, blah, blah. They have a propaganda slogan and a lot of people fall for it. They say, yes, of course, we are doing the dirty job. And those uh, uh, white-collar criminals up there <coughs> take off the cream. And that's unjust. But you see, the point is, <coughs> which <coughs> is miss, they miss is this. The uh, policy of high wages, attractive as it may appear to you for humanitarian reasons. And a lot, a lot of churches, including the Catholic Church, but also the Protestant churches and other religions also say that the poor worker has to be helped because he hasn't got the power. Whereas the powerful capitalists confronting them uh, at the bargaining table have all the balls and they can call the shots and the, the individual worker can do nothing. So we have to give the right to the unions to call strikes and use various methods including picketing and so on and so forth. So in effect what it boils down is that the government has a high wage policy and this includes power to the unions to coerce, to force fellow workers who do not want to strike to go on and strike. And uh, you know they call those uh, fellow workers who don't want to strike yellow scabs. Is that familiar? That's what the official unions call those workers yellow. And the yellow scab is <coughs> free target to 
abuse verbally and non-verbally sometimes. They attack them and they, the police will not protect them because they are strike breakers and so on. So you might say, oh, well, serves them right. Why don't they just give them higher wages? The fact is that if they do, and they do in fact, what happens is to push the marginal productivity of labor up. Now it sounds good, doesn't it? Productivity goes up, that can only be good. But actually it's not good because all it does is to push a lot of workers into the sub-marginal category. In plain English, what it means is that they lose their job. Unemployment is increasing. So the high-wage policy of the government backfires. It makes conditions worse than the government, uh, than the previously existing conditions were. And of course you could elaborate on this more and more. And with this I think I should conclude that the marginal productivity of labor is a very, very important concept and we should take every caution to hone it so that it will be a precisely formulated concept will not be ambiguous because that is a crucial thing for our fellow workers uh, you know who are very deserving I'm not denying uh, it's all my sympathy is with those who, uh, workers who toil long hours at the job and support a family and even give a good education to their children who will be able to uh, have a, a better education and a better job and a better paying job and so on and so forth. So we have all that sympathy but we should remember that if you force the issue like the governments do by giving uh, unions a free hand doing violence against their fellow workers, and by the way, I mentioned violence against company property. That's not going to help anybody if the workers can uh, actually uh, destroy uh, machinery on the floor, uh, on the shop floor. That's not going to help anybody, but the government virtually gives license if the union wants to do damage to company property, well, they do. They puncture the tires of the trucks and so on and so forth. I remember uh, when I bought my first car, which was uh, somewhere in the 1960s, early 60s. It doesn't matter which year it was, but I remember uh, the, uh, one of the first big cities I visited was Boston. And if you recall, Boston used to be the shoe capital of the United States. There are lots of uh, shoe factories and the supporting industries 
the treating leather for making shoes and so on. And the, uh, the American shoes were high quality shoes in high demand all over the world. And uh, th that was much earlier, actually a decade earlier than uh, when, uh, before, long before I drove through that area, it's a suburb of Boston, I forget the name, but it's not important, where these shoe factories were. And I drove through and it looked like a bombed out area of Germany after World War II. Broken windows, uh, you just use your imagination. That if you want to do, do damage, uh, then you do to the factory which gave you a job and a good decent living and it went so far as actually putting these factories, shoe factories out of business. The shoe manufacturing in the United States went into a decline and then disappeared com almost completely. Almost completely. That's what the bleeding heart uh, policy of high wages advocated by the government and unions accomplished. Abolishing high good factories with a good demand of the product, just giving the power to the unions to call a strike and during the strike it was free for all. They could break windows, they could destroy machinery, they could even do violence uh, against a fellow worker who did not like the idea of going uh, on strike. Now this was a first-hand experience. It opened my eyes. It was early 1960s. And I could not believe my eyes. And then I went to another city in Canada. It was New Brunswick called, called uh, Moncton. Moncton had a public transport bus company, which was a good uh, company, gave good service. The bus drivers went on strike, and with government support, they stretched out the strike so far that the company actually folded, never reopened. Now, I don't know what the situation is today, but it was a private company, and if it was, uh, if the company was re-established many, many years later, which I didn't follow, but for many years there was simply no public transportation in Moncton. But if there was later, this was a, a municipal government thing, and obviously municipal government piled up debts and ultimately had to go bankrupt. I don't know the rest of the story, but you could check it out if you want to. And there are lots and lots of examples. I think I have overstepped my time, so okay. I sign off. Thank you Thanks very, very much. much, Professor. Thank you. Um, so we'll meet back at four o'clock.